Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, before we begin, this is Nico. If you are unfamiliar with my voice or my name, I really just want to take a moment and say I genuinely thank you for checking out Suncast, especially those of you, my solar warriors, who are tuning in during this pandemic. You know, I can't appreciate enough that you're taking time out of your day to listen to the show. Just wanted you to know that we're trying to, as much as possible to not be tone deaf during this time. We've moved some of our episodes around to try and be sensitive to the situation that we're all enduring right now. So I just wanted to say in the beginning, thank you for being here. And I am really, truly grateful for you. Hope that you will continue to support Suncast. And uh, you can do that most first and foremost by showing up. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our tribe. Hey, hey, all right. Happy Thursday. Here we are locked down as usual, but grateful nonetheless to be bringing you more content here on Suncast. I hope that you had a chance this week to tune in to Tuesday's episode with the eponymous Vikram Agarwal of Energy Sage and hope you learned about how marketplaces are empowering customers and installers in this crazy solar coaster market that we're in. Hey, did anybody else see my LinkedIn live yesterday? I did an hour-long session with last week's guest, Pamela Wagner, answering all of your questions about how to leverage paid media and Google AdWords and why right now is a great time to jump into it. If you missed it, make sure that you are following me on LinkedIn and you'll get notified the next time I do go live, which happens to be tomorrow. Today's entrepreneur is a founder that I've gotten to know over the last six months. And we also recently hosted a LinkedIn Live as well, Mr. John Powers. If that name sounds familiar and you're thinking of John Powers from Clean Capital, well, I've got news for you. There's more than one innovative CEO in solar named John Powers. I couldn't be more uh, grateful for the extensible energy team and uh, John and Tor and how they have uh, really stepped up and supported Suncast. They help make sure that this show arrives to your ears for free each and every week and have done so for the last six months. And we're really, truly grateful for that. I want to have a chance, therefore, to give you some insight into this company, Extensible. And it's worth noting that this is an episode I, I gladly am having with John, not because they're a sponsor, but because I genuinely believe that they have a great company and great product and that John's story as a founder is one that we can all learn from. He's the founder of this cutting edge software company that I've been mentioning. It's taking on the challenge of helping CNI projects get the most value out of their solar and efficiency measures. You know, the commercial solar industry has always been next year's market. Can I get an amen? And it always seems rife with problems. As we know, though, problems, well, that's an entrepreneur's opportunity. 
Listen in today as John and I go deep into the ecosystems that they inhabit and can hear some of his controversial views, especially around storage. I particularly found deep value in John's retelling of how they funded the company and how they went into product development. You know, that segment alone is podcast gold, so please do listen all the way through today. John's a true innovator, and that's why I'm proud that they've partnered with us, not only here on the podcast, but also for our upcoming Suncast Summit, which is coming live on Earth Day. Let's celebrate Earth Day together. To learn more, check out suncastsummit.com, and we look forward to seeing you in virtual life on April 22nd. Now, for now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, today is going to be a fun ride if you've been paying attention to how the solar industry has been evolving. And for those of us who've been in it long enough, you see that what's happening with energy storage these days mirrors a lot of what's happening with how solar panels evolved in our solar industry at large. However, one of the untold stories and one that we'll dig into today is about ways that you can actually give your customers a quantum leap in efficiency and effectiveness without having to glom onto, as I'll say, the story at a macro level that solar plus storage is the way to go. We're going to talk about what are all of the inputs that you want to consider as you help your customers deliver the maximum energy efficiency and transition away from their current way of thinking about using energy. With that, I'd like to introduce today's guest, John Powers, who's the CEO and founder of Extensible Energy. John is an energy consultant, an energy economist, and a serial entrepreneur with more than three decades of experience in technology development for energy markets. He's worked across a slew of different aspects of this industry, has a, an incredible story and a stellar team, and I can't wait to unpack it here on Suncast today. John, thanks for joining us on Suncast. It is a pleasure to be with you, Nico. Indeed, man, indeed. And I just want to give a shout out and a hat tip to our mutual friend, Tor Valenza, who connected us and insisted that that you join us here on Suncast. Tor is uh, on, the, on the bleeding edge of what's happening in this industry. And I, along with many others, trust his opinion. And uh, having gotten to spend some time uh, better understanding your company, I can definitely see why uh, he thinks highly of you. So I'm glad to be able to bring your perspective to uh, to those who maybe don't know anything about Extensible, but also to those perhaps who don't know uh, who you are and uh, in the broader scheme of, uh, of sort of what's happening there in the Bay Area. So John, with that, I'd like to ask as we step uh, tiptoe into what has been a pretty broad uh, and impactful career already, uh, your first exposure into clean energy, maybe even go back as far as how you even got exposed to the energy sector writ large, and how you decided that what you're doing now is how you wanted to focus your career. Yeah. So, I mean, I have been in the energy industry for most of my adult life. Uh, my first job out of college was actually with um, Portland General Electric in the rates department there. So, I learned a lot about how the electricity markets work, how utilities set tariffs, just became fascinated with the question of how customers use energy and how they make energy-related decisions. Those questions have kind of guided me through being a consultant, as you mentioned, but also being a 
serial entrepreneur on the software side of this business. So we did some work with a company called Energy Interactive that actually was designed to present back commercial and industrial customers how they were using energy and how they could improve that usage to save money on their bills, to be more energy efficient, and to save on peak demand, which we'll get into in a little bit. You know, that company was really where a lot of the ideas we're working on now got started. But that was, I mean, for those who are unfamiliar and haven't taken a glance at your LinkedIn portfolio, we're talking about Nearly 25 years back. I mean, 1997 was the beginning of, for many of us, sort of the internet boom and the internet bubble. But what, what I hear you talking about is type of a business model that is not unlike O powers of today. Is that accurate? That's right. Is what well, we we were probably among the very first software as a service B two B businesses on the internet. Um, we were serving up. Uh, energy usage patterns for utilities to deliver to their large commercial and industrial customers. And that was pretty innovative in the late 90s. Um, it was innovative enough that actually um, ABB, uh, the European conglomerate, bought us out. And I worked there for some years as well in expanding that product line to go international and to reach a far larger number of um of commercial and industrial accounts. So that that product lives on to this day. ABB sold it and it now is part of Schneider Electric. But um, there's a product called Energy Profiler Online that's used by literally hundreds of thousands of commercial and industrial customers to this day. Now, help me understand why a company like ABB or even Schneider would want to own that product, why they're the, the logical uh, exit uh, partner for you on a product like that. There was a lot of, I'll call it enthusiasm in the uh, sort of 2000 timeframe for hardware companies to get into software. ABB already had a significant software practice in um, wholesale markets. Um, they, they were serving uh, independent system operators and the rest around the world at that time, but they wanted to move more into being able to serve utilities and their customers, not just the large central markets. They also had a, a wholesale markets product. So uh, this fit very well with their product strategy at the time. I was gone before um, Schneider ended up with that uh, piece of the business. So I don't know the entire uh, journey of that group from ABB to another company and then to Schneider. But if you visit with Schneider at any of the trade shows now, that's an important piece of their offering to owned and municipal utilities. So obviously big suppliers all along the electricity value chain. And this is part of that. I love it. And I remember in a previous call with uh, with you, you characterized yourself as an energy nerd. And I, I don't know if it's maybe coincidental. I'm getting a lot of folks that self uh, that self-identify as nerds. Andrew Eisenberg of Green IT was on recently and sort of said the same about himself. But as an energy nerd who has spent 30 years working on energy and efficiency matters, who in fact early in his career had a successful exit to a major conglomerate like ABB, how would you contrast the problems that you encountered with building your business in the you know late 90s, 2000s with the macro environment or maybe even the micro struggles that you have today with Extensible? I'm a big believer in that, you know, you need 
10,000 hours of practice to get good in anything, but I've now put in a lot more than 10,000 hours as a software startup CEO in energy. So stepped in a lot of potholes at Energy Interactive that I have, have learned to get around, but some of the themes are the same as they were then. It's hard to find great engineering talent that wants to focus on clean tech. You know, there's so much you mentioned that we're in the Bay Area. Here in the San Francisco Bay Area, the lure of tech tech with very high salaries and fancy benefits and the rest is uh, is very strong. And one, one of the things I like to try to do is to advocate for the clean tech space and try to lure some of the talent, uh, mainstream tech into clean tech where we need that talent. Um, so certainly... Attracting talent is number one in building any good startup. Some of the things that are much easier now are since the you know early days of the internet, we have much better cloud computing, higher processing power, cheaper networks, better sensors, all the kinds of things that um, folks have invested untold billions in that we're just riding along on top of. The ability to build really amazing software control systems is the core of our new business at Extensible Energy. And that's that's really improved in the last 20 years. The frameworks just weren't there 20 years ago. What we did then is basically tell commercial and industrial accounts, here's your whole history. You made a mistake yesterday. That's useful up to a point, right? You If, if you're an an energy manager and can spend the time at it, you can learn and change based on that. But the new product is designed to say, you're about to make a mistake in an hour, but don't worry, we've fixed it already. That's what customers really want because at least unless you're a very large customer, you don't have dedicated staff watching how your energy is being used. So for small to medium to even relatively large commercial and industrial accounts, the ability for a cloud-based solution to look down and actually forecast what your building is going to do and then fix it if it's going to be costly, that's just a huge benefit. You know, I'm conscious that some folks listening might not actually, we, I said in the outset, they may not even have ever heard of uh, Extensible or, or thought at length about the various sort of complementary systems that are operating within the sphere of, uh, let's say, a, an industrial complex manager who's trying to figure out how they can best optimize their energy usage or a retail customer, et cetera, along the lines of what you were just discussing. The nature of, I was floored to discover uh, that Extensible is a 10-year-old company, but the nature of the work that you do reminds me a lot of our mutual friend, Ed uh, Hecox over at, he's now at Chint, but his, his, his company is called Invect. And, you know, he kind of stood up the business for Chint under the name Invect for a while. And if I recall correctly, Extensible in many ways has similar roots. C- can you tell me sort of the, what was the genesis of how Extensible came about and take me back to, you know, some of the early the early theory and conversations as, as you were trying to think about how do you get, you know, the solar pathways stuff going and Jill Clyburn, how she became a part of it. I'd love to hear that story. Right. <laughs> sure. So extensible energy 
LLC was just a one-person consulting vehicle for me to go back to some of my old utility clients and do a bit of consulting work. But really, and that was maybe uh, 2010 to 2013 or so. But in 2014, um, the Department of Energy, um, the Sunshot Group came out with a solar market pathways opportunity. And that announcement, so a group of us, myself, Jill Clyburn, some folks from Navigant and some folks from Olivine all got together and said, we could really do something that would move the needle on community solar, which was under the, guy, under the um, umbrella of that solar market pathways uh, opportunity. We bid on that um, and extensible was not quick enough to duck out of the way. So we went, ended up being the prime contractor on that. And so, so we spent boy, close to three years on a project studying how to make community solar more of a win-win between the utility, the end customer, and the developer. The, the results always pointed back to load flexibility, is that solar alone was a hard sell and solar plus any kind of load flexibility was much more economical. The insights there led us to product development later at Extensible Energy. So the, the early days were a lot about learning how things I knew all along about um, how customers use energy really fit with the economics of solar. And that um, that was an invaluable period where Jill and myself, especially the two of us, worked together very closely with a bunch of utilities on the uh, economic models that would really drive adoption rather than sort of have it. Community solar was kind of an interesting footnote in 2014. But over the next three years, things really got some traction. And you can still go to communitysolarvalueproject.com and see all the. Uh, Results of that project is uh, funded by DOE and some of our utility co-sponsors. And so that information is all public and still very useful and accessible. I think we were the first to ever propose solar and demand response together. And some of the early research we did was a little awkward, but I, I have to say it opened up a lot of people's eyes to how utilities and other grid operators needed to address uh, rising solar penetrations. You know, you as an entrepreneur and as an energy uh, industry executive have worked at, at all spectrums, one person LLC all the way up to, you know, manager at multi-global company and uh, utility uh, service provider to utility, you know, three decades per, of experience. Are there mental models or management tools that you've extracted that for you now as an entrepreneur have really served the growth of your current company? I kind of hope so. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's hard to sort of isolate it to specific, I don't know, specific lessons learned. Mm -hmm. I would say that with respect to what we're doing now, I think we've learned that really focusing on the end customer even though you know I've been supported well by working with utilities and other providers, I think the end customer, anything that 
you build has to work well for them and deliver value for them. So I think we've put a lot more emphasis at uh, extensible energy on the the economic benefits delivered directly to the end customer than at any other point in my career. So I think that's uh, maybe obvious to some folks, but I think the end customer for solar and our software has to be the one where most of the benefits um, are derived. So that's mm-hmm. not like, for example, a demand response program where the utility is getting most of the value from load flexibility. The customers can derive tremendous value from it. And in our case now at Extensible Energy, any utility program participation is way down the road. We're not targeting that at all. We're targeting helping the customer integrate their solar with their own energy usage patterns for much, much greater savings than solar alone. Mm. So, So that's actually a good entree for those who maybe are unfamiliar. How do you characterize the problem that you're solving with Extensible today? Pretty simply, solar is a great technology for saving energy, but not demand. One cloud can ruin your whole month. Let's think about for a minute how demand charges are calculated. You and I pay for kilowatt hours at home. If we put solar behind the meter, solar at a minimum substitutes for the kilowatt hours used one for one. Now, a commercial building might pay up to half of their electricity bill on what's called a demand charge. That's based on the highest usage, 15 minutes of the entire month. Think about it, the commercial buildings are paying half their bill for the worst operating mistake they make every month. So that's a huge opportunity for anybody who can help control those mistakes. Solar is not particularly good at assessing what time the building's maximum usage will be. Uh, Combining solar with load flexibility software delivers demand charge management, time of use arbitrage, all the things we hear about from battery storage vendors. But the low-hanging fruit is in the usage of end uses in the building that can be flexible. We treat buildings as though all the load is just the load and we have to meet that load. Well, uh, that's leaving a lot of easy load flexibility on the table. Mm-hmm. We'll get into some examples in a minute, but that's the, the, the problem we see is that solar saves energy only and customers want to save money. And that means saving energy and demand. You've mentioned a couple times a term that I want to make sure we disambiguate for folks, because if you're not particularly like in the sort of in the energy audit world necessarily, the idea of load flexibility may not directly resonate. Can you help me sort of unpack that and why that's important for, for the kind of customer that you're targeting? Yeah, absolutely. So when I talk about flexible loads, especially in commercial buildings, we're talking about anything that you need to use it, but the timing doesn't matter. So that could be a battery behind the meter. That could be, uh, for example, car chargers behind the meter. But in most commercial buildings today, the most common flexible and use is heating and cooling. Nobody cares when the compressors run. They only care that it's comfortable inside. So that's a lot of energy that can be timed differently. Um, we're, I think, the only company that it's out there saying 
after you have solar on a building, you should use energy differently. So the timing of your net energy use is what determines your bill. Why wouldn't you time it better? And in a lot of cases, that's nothing more sophisticated than HVAC or heating and cooling loads. Yeah, I mean, this sounds like, I mean, when I was doing an energy audit certificate at PG&E's training center, I learned a lot lot about variable frequency drives and things like that. And, And it was my first entree into understanding, oh, like there are ways to turn machines up and down to actually have them work harder or less hard during a period of time so that I, I, I have a concept of the timing. It, it also seems to me that it complements well, I mean, back to your roots, having worked at Portland General and learned how and why uh, rates were designed, which you know therefore informs at a macro level your understanding of how consumers do or do not think about their consumption of electricity. Yeah, I mean, we're all trained to think in kilowatt hours, but in fact, that's not the way commercial customers are built. So if you're able to think in terms that it matters just as much when I use energy as how much I use, then you begin to see how big uh, a cost reduction you can get by shifting more of the energy used by your building into the period solar is generating more. That syncing up of the production with the consumption means you put less strain on the grid and it costs you less to buy power from the grid. So that that just simple synchronization between output of your own solar and consumption of your own energy in the building saves a ton of money and it helps solar projects pay off much faster. That's sort of the the end goal of this is to make commercial solar more viable because utility scale solar has done great, as you well know. Residential solar has done fine because it trades one for one with dollars spent on kilowatt hours. But commercial and industrial solar is always kind of next year's market because the in part because the Uh, economics aren't nearly as favorable unless you can save both energy and demand. Nail on the head right there. And all of my friends who are developing CNI Solar say, amen. (laughs) I just want to pull back a piece here, a layer of the onion that uh, if you read PV Magazine or Green Tech Media or heck, any of the the prevailing sort sort of media outlets today, the thing that we're shouting from the mountaintops is solar plus storage. And this is heralded by Shoot Stem, Green Charge Networks, Tesla, geez, practically anybody that's involved in storage these days have said, if you're having a problem managing your load, you should really consider batteries and, and load shifting, not load flexibility. So I don't hear that coming from you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's two ways to address the same problem for sure. And I'm a big fan of batteries. I drive a battery to work every day. Shout out to Chevy Bolt. (laughs) And, you know, batteries are a huge part of modern utility distributed storage. So if you think about megawatt hour scale batteries at substations, that's going to be a very important part of how the grid becomes more resilient. But if you think about a battery behind the meter, every single site needs its own master electrician and permitting and fire suppression and space in the building. And pretty soon, a lot of costs that are not even associated with lithiums or ions get piled on. So it's in our experience, it's been very um, slow going for some of the folks you just mentioned and others who are trying to sell 
batteries be in the meter for exclusively economic purposes. Sure, you can use them for resilience, but you know we all read in the sources you mentioned, green tech media and the rest, that lithium-ion batteries cost 100 or 150 bucks a kilowatt hour. But that's if you stand at the end of the assembly line and catch the cells as they come off into a bucket. And they're installed in a commercial building. To this day, the prices are more like $1,000 a kilowatt hour. So that means if lithium ion is free, it's still going to be 850 bucks a kilowatt hour when it's installed in a commercial building. That's a very high cost compared to taking advantage of the inherent flexibility in the equipment that's already there. In fact, we've calculated that uh, load flexibility driven by smart software is like having a battery at $50 a kilowatt hour of capacity. So it's one-tenth or one-twentieth the cost of a physical battery after it's installed in a building. (laughs) I'm not sure I can wrap my head around that just right now. So for those who are unfamiliar with why $50 is a a jaw-dropping number, what is the cost of batteries today? Yeah, so, so the cost of batteries today after installation in a building is you can get quotes for five or 600, but I've never seen it actually done for less than about a thousand dollars a kilowatt hour installed. And that's, you know, that's why we're, we're targeting something that advocates picking the low hanging fruit first. There's plenty of places where a battery might make sense down the road, but uh, not until you've first done the, uh, done the easy work of taking out the big spikes that come from operating mistakes and from, you know, the fact that solar has now just dug out a lot of the load shape in the middle of the day. And if you're able to handle the stuff on the ends without a battery, let's start there. I used this analogy before when we were chatting, but it seems to me like if I wanted to use a common phrase that folks are familiar with, the old adage for recycling, which is reduce, reuse, recycle, recycles at the end. We're trying to stick batteries in the beginning where there's a reduced phase. You're saying, wait, 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 batteries actually are not a terrible technology. And just like we need recycling, we need batteries, but there's a bunch of things you can do before that. Yeah, exactly. So again, I'm, I'm not against batteries at all. And I think that um, the, the trick is to put them in where they make the most economic sense. And if you are able to first control the HVAC systems in the building more intelligently, just to give one example, to synchronize up with the solar, as I said a little bit ago, um, you'll, you'll find that the you can right-size a battery for a building in a way that's much more economical than if you tried to handle the worst operating mistake of each building with a battery large enough to handle that. If you look at load shapes as much as we do, um, you'll see many, many examples where those kind of load profiles present a prohibitively expensive job for batteries to to handle, whereas um, you can combine some s- simple, smart software that makes batteries pay off sooner, not, not later. Hey, I wonder if you, like me, are looking at this as an opportunity to really grow your personal development, your professional development and capacity in your organization. If you are, then I would like to recommend you check out my friends HeatSpring. HeatSpring is on a mission to provide professionals with the knowledge and real-world skills you need to continue making a positive change in the world. The folks at HeatSpring have created an online platform to make learning and teaching convenient and intuitive. 
And there are courses across a wide spectrum of clean energy, from solar modeling to fundamentals of geothermal energy, and now even energy efficiency and drone courses. Many are free. You can learn from industry thought leaders like Sean White, Ryan Mayfield, Glenna Wiseman, Adam Gerza, and many more. And with over 100 free courses, let's face it, and you've got hours of time on your hands right now, there's just never been a better time for you to go brush up on your skills, get your NABCEP certifications locked down. Take my advice, go check out the two free NABCEP courses. Probably your best bet to dive in. They've even got a free drone course as well. Check it all out at heatspring.com forward slash suncast. And for those last two courses that I mentioned, if you do forward slash suncast dash NEC, you can check out the PB and 2020 NEC code training or suncast dash drones. That's a free course on drones for solar. Check out heatspring.com. You won't regret it. Build capacity, improve your life. All right, Warriors. So you know that high demand charges can ruin a good commercial solar cell. But what if you could offer your clients 30% in demand charge savings at a tenth? That's right, a tenth the cost of installing a battery. You can now do that with DemandX, a new demand charge reduction software from Extensible Energy. Check it out at extensibleenergy.com and read the three case studies on how DemandX significantly reduced demand charges and increased ROI without batteries. As a Suncast listener, you can also get a free demand charge analysis at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. What do you have to lose? Crunch the numbers and see for yourself how Extensible Energy's inexpensive DemandX software is a win-win for you and your commercial solar clients. Going back to your roots, this thought process evolved from developing community solar. Help explain the community aspect or maybe the ecosystem of how you conceptualize as a CEO of your company that your product, your business fits within the overarching ecosystem of what we're all about. It's just trying to get more solar and more clean energy into the world. The grid is changing, right? The grid is definitely changing from a uh, centralized, one-way, dirty system to Mm -hmm. a clean, truly distributed network of resources. Distributed energy resources are more economical, more resilient, clearly the future of the grid. We think our part is related to matching loads to resources as more non-dispatchable or non-controllable resources come onto the grid, wind and solar in particular, the load side of the grid has to become more flexible in order to accommodate more solar resources. So our, our piece is to help make flexible resources accessible to the customer, is to help the customer take resources they didn't know were in their own building and turn them into load flexibility. So nothing is cheaper than storage somebody's already bought for you. The thermal mass of a commercial building is a huge battery, and we need to just acknowledge that and take advantage of that as we accommodate more and more solar behind the meter or in front of the meter. You know, one of the things that I also, and it, like it's in the back of my mind here is I've heard, obviously, those who've listened to some of the some of the messaging that we have from Extensible 
uh, in our mid roles, even uh, as you guys are, you know, thankfully partners with us here on Suncast, is that you guys are targeting the commercial industrial sector, and that you your job is to help make it easier for installers to to win customers. I think we all believe that solar is an, an ecosystem, and where you know we all have our part to play. How do software advantages over hardware, which is rapidly kind of going down to the least cost uh, and and isn't a differentiator anymore. How does a software provider help a a commercial installer win a deal or get a deal done faster? Yeah, so you you hit it on the head. Um, In every single industry, there's a time, especially any tech, tech industry, there's a time when hardware becomes commoditized and software becomes the key differentiator. And I think solar is at that point now. So when we think about uh, our place in the ecosystem, we think of where we fit with other solar-oriented or DER-oriented software companies. So we work with Energy Toolbase. We work with Utility API. We work with all these other vendors who are creating value for the project developer and installer. We, for example, are a uh, 100% um, distributor business. We don't sell directly to commercial buildings. We sell as part of a solar project through our solar development partners. The way software can help is in streamlining the process in, in the case of something like utility API or energy tool base, or in um, economic benefit in the case of extensible energies demand charge management software. If your proposal uses all those tools to bring the best possible deal to your end customer, you have an advantage over any other installer. I've said for a while that we think that in the solar world, the era of the, I'll just call it panel salesman, is kind of passing quickly because the folks who are able to take the role of a trusted energy partner or trusted energy consultant to the commercial business will outcompete them because you can bring together solar, storage, load flexibility, energy efficiency, produce a combined proposal that's much more competitive than just put solar on the roof and go. So I think that transformation among smart project developers is happening as we speak. And I think that's the way the next decade is going to unfold. SIA has called the decade the solar plus decade. And we've been very enthusiastic about saying we think of that as the solar plus software decade. I'm not convinced that California's, I'll say, incentive structure for solar plus is is working the way that the way that your hypothesis would suggest, uh, because it seems like it's incentivizing a lot of batteries and it's incentivizing um, things that um, that get the commercial customer to sort of skip a step in the process. Could, could you maybe amplify that a little bit? Oh yeah, <laughs> as a California taxpayer, I'd be happy to a- amplify that because what I saw was, and you know, the program I think everybody knows is called SGIP, uh, and it's uh, a very generous incentive. When, when we go all the way back to the legislation that was passed to create this, it was supposed to be a technology neutral way of encouraging storage to go with solar. And that 
by the definition I would have read into the original legislation, that would include software, it would include all kinds of other storage besides batteries. And then when it got to the PUC, there was uh, a lot of rulemaking that pushed things more towards this has to be more likely to be batteries or thermal storage. And then when it got to the utilities to actually implement, it had to have a rated capacity with, you know, a nameplate on a battery that had a certain set of operating characteristics. So it went from a great idea, which is what can we do to make greater flexibility that accommodates more solar to a specific implementation by the utilities that requires hardware, something that would hurt if you dropped it on your foot. So I, I think that the ideas were good from the beginning, but they have been um, directed in such a way as to heavily subsidize some of the least economical solutions while leaving some of the most economical solutions out in the cold. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'll just point out that, you know, for those who are unfamiliar with the battery sector, uh, and I have a question following this that I hope is a logical segue, but some of the big players like STEM and and others have raised hundreds of millions, not tens of, <laughs> not tens of millions, but hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital to acquire a, a, rel- a relatively small pool of customers, you know, which makes right. it extremely expensive if their number one funding strategy is go after the S-chip market <laughs> to fund it all. Right. Which brings me to a question that I have for you. You know, you're a software play. And one of the things that you mentioned early into the discussion was the grants that you've been able to acquire. Um, help me understand the your philosophy as a CEO of a startup, uh, the, you know, how to raise capital and provide the best experience for your customers. And, and, and in particular, how instrumental was the grant to being a catalyst for launching this business? Yeah, really, we should talk about what I call the second grant. So we talked about the Community Solar Award, which was great, but we we applied for what's called a Small Business Innovation Research, SBIR Award from the U.S. Department of Energy, and we got that in sometime in, in 2016 to work on what we were calling at that time solar load balancing software, which became the internals to our existing product. I have to say, and again, we'll give a shout out to the Solar Energy Technology Office at DOE, that in terms of taking a very risky prospective future technology that doesn't exist from a decent idea, proven working prototype in the field, the the value of a uh, DOE SBIR grant is incredible. Um, so they break those into two phases. Phase one, you get 150000 or so to do a proof of concept. And we did all of that as a simulation, convinced us that we were on to something. And we applied for the phase two award, which is to build a working prototype and field tested in real world buildings. And we got that as well. And that was a million dollars over almost two years, which funded a lot of the underlying engineering work um, to build a a product in this space. In terms of a funding strategy for the company, there's no way any 
venture capitalist, angel investor, no matter how risk-taking, would fund that kind of two years of initial kind of prototype work. And so the the DOE de-risked our business tremendously. And now we're in a much better position to raise money from capital markets, be it you know, seed or series A or whatever. So it's it's a great lesson for entrepreneurs to find these are competitive, competitive grants. We've applied and won and applied and lost. But the ability to take they they won't fund the development of your business, but they will fund the development of your technology, which is tremendously important to an early stage business. Yeah. And it's a great source of non-dilutive finance for a technology that's frankly hard to build. Absolutely right. Yeah. You will want a very good accountant, but other than that, it's a great resource for- um, I'm glad you said that. That was actually my question because like (laughs) the thing I wanted to point out is A, far too many of the entrepreneurs these days are like, oh, I'm going to go pitch this and raise a series or a seed series or an angel round or whatever. And instead of looking at SBIRs and other non-dilutive ways of raising capital, including like Energy Toolbase did, just go get customers. (laughs) Yeah. So I just want to tell my my entrepreneur partners out there, nobody funds an idea. They only fund a business. To have a business, you have to have some technology So and a team and all these other things. So the ability to do the non-dilutive financing with the grant money that is able to take these bigger, earlier stage risks is a great strategy and by all means take advantage of it i just love that uh, i mean i consider this to be the type of gold that we can extract in an interview like this that i really hope that listeners are listening all the way through because this is this is experience from I me mean, this is this is um you know someone uh, projecting for you who is trying to build your own company like these are the lessons learned i'm not doing a specific lessons learned segment right now this is I mean, this is like hard fought, um, hard won uh, information and knowledge here. I have one other question, though, John, around this specifically. It seems like, I mean, this would scare the pants off of me because I'm not, um, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a nerd. I'm not a math quant. Um, and this seems like it requires a lot of heavy math. Who's doing the heavy lifting on the back end? And how do you as a CEO really conceptualize how to build that team out? Yeah. So, I mean, I've always espoused the, you know, again, a great piece of entrepreneurial advice, go hire somebody smarter than you. So we have a great uh, CTO in Ari Halberstadt. We have a great director of engineering in Keith Mosier. We have really great engineers on our team um, so that I can focus more on the economics the partnership model, the uh, capital raise, all the things that aren't build out the core technology. So the team is everything at an early stage. And, you know, I've been very, very um, impressed and in fact, amazed at the progress our team has made together. I find that in my life and my career, some of the stuff that you're talking about has come to me. And this is one of the reasons why I created Suncast through conversations like this with mentors where I ask these questions over a whiskey at SPI, right? It's just some of those things where mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm, I'm insatiably curious about this. Who were the early mentors to you and what did you learn from them that's helped you really groom your team and your businesses? Right. So boy, um, that goes all the way back to some of the earlier times. So um, Robert McCullough was my first boss at Portland General. He is a, a 
brilliant energy economist and unbelievable experience working on a, a very tight team with him and some of the other folks at Portland General, Bruce, Bruce Smith and Robert Uloner at Quantum Consulting. Uh, I joined Quantum as a consultant while I was still in graduate school as the third person in a three-person team. And, and we grew that up to well over 100 folks in uh, over the next decade. So um, working with those guys every day really taught me to not be afraid of a little hard work, taught, taught me to get out and talk to customers. Um, you know, one of the best salesmen I ever worked with used to say, what are you all doing in here? <laughs> the customers are out there. <laughs> so, you know, is, if, if, if ever you get too much in your head, go out and talk to other folks who are working in this industry. You know, I, uh, when we were testing all the ideas that I've talked about, we didn't just go and write them on software. We went out and talked to um, commercial building managers, uh, commercial solar developers, other folks in the commercial funding ecosystem. I'll give the example of Brian Biersick at Wonder Capital. Mm, I sat yeah. down for coffee with him in Boulder one morning, and he gave me this, you know, what in retrospect is such an obvious, obvious insight, which is small to medium commercial buildings may have only half the floor space in the commercial sector, but they're 90% of the roof space. So, duh, at one level, right? But at another level, that means it just doesn't matter that we're not building a full-blown energy management system ready to take on the Empire State Building or the Salesforce Tower because solar wouldn't make any difference at those sites anyway. So focusing on churches and schools and smaller professional office buildings and small to medium retail buildings suddenly made a lot more sense. You know, there's mentors and then there are just folks who have delivered great insights along the way. I am in 100% agreement. We had Brian here on on the show. The guy uh, has a ton of insight about his customer base, uh, and I just it speaks such it speaks volumes for the wisdom that you bring into this uh, on how to uh, as the as the leader of the company how to aggregate, collate, and disseminate information to your team that matters, right? And how to point them in the right directions, and that's where I think that a lot of folks kind of get in the early entrepreneurial journey they get a little bit tripped up feeling like they have to be the savior or the hero rather than, uh, you know, the person that's, that's the chief servant, right? Like you're willing to go out and scrub the floors, which is sit down with Brian and ask hard questions and admit that you don't know. And I think that speaks a lot for, uh, for your position as the CEO. Uh, you told me one, uh, one time that you had given a ton of jobs to people out of Berkeley. What is that? Where, where does that come from? Yeah, that, that was just a great, you know, again, I mentioned Bruce and Robert at uh, at Quantum Consulting. When we set up shop here in you know the early '90s, the economy was not nearly booming the way it is now, and we were growing very quickly based on our you know work in uh, customer research and program evaluation for utilities. So we were able to hire some of the best and brightest who. You know, being in downtown Berkeley, you're walking distance away from a mm -hmm. gold mine of talent. So we got very good at giving opportunities to folks and figuring out if they were a good fit for us. That's been, for me, a source of inspiration, right, is that to see folks who are 
um, either still in school or just coming out of school who are so passionate about making an impact in the world to be able to, to sort of put them on a high impact job right away as their first job out of college or their first job while they're in college has just been so rewarding for, well, for me and for the whole team. And we still do that at, at extensible, you know, the, the place is crawling with interns and short-term workers who we then, you know, decide if there's a good fit and keep um, the talent pool in Berkeley is incredibly deep. And uh, uh, I've, I've always uh, enjoyed working here in downtown Berkeley. John, I know that you're an insatiable reader as well. Uh, we have uh, we've shared notes on books that we enjoy. I'd like to know what books have most shaped and influenced your leadership style. So the one I just gave to our entire team as a holiday gift a couple months ago is called The Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande. Mm. It's not even a business book. Atul Gawande, for those of you who know him, is a, a brilliant surgeon who is also an author, and he's, he can really write. And The Checklist Manifesto is all about simple things you can do to improve outcomes. Now, as a startup, we were really pushing hard on innovation and development of new capabilities, but we're reaching a point where now that we're going out to uh, replicable sales at customer sites, we also need to not forget all the things we've learned as we've gone into our first few. So I wanted our whole team to have this mindset of establishing replicable procedures and then being able to check them off to make sure we're doing them so stuff doesn't slip through the cracks. So even though I would not say that's a business book, Atul Gawande's, all of his books are, are excellent, but a checklist manifesto at a certain stage of a growing business is a great one to go take a look at. Is there any other habit or consistent practice that you feel has given the greatest impact or yield on your life and work? Well, in, in terms of work, I'd have to say um, the advice I mentioned a bit earlier, get out there. The more you get into your own head and convince yourself how brilliant your ideas are, the worse off you're going to be. The more you get out and talk to end customers, other market participants, the more you learn and the more you're able to reflect those insights in whatever you're developing. So trust your judgment only up to a certain point. Test your judgment by talking to more people. John, where can folks find you? Are you present on LinkedIn, Twitter? How, how do you show up? Yeah, I'm on Twitter as John underscore powers. And I'm on LinkedIn at whatever that long mess is yeah. slash John T, John T. Powers. Well, of course, we'll link to your website, extensibleenergy.com. How could the Suncast audience help? You've got a, you know, I've got a crowd of, uh, of avid solar warriors here listening. Is there any ask that you might have? The ask is really to give me feedback on the uh, supposed insight I gave that developers have to become more total energy solution providers than panel salesmen. I'd like to know how true that is and in what ways folks are seeing that, because that I think is an important assumption I'm making that I want to test with your listeners. Mm, I love it. So you hear that, Solar Warrior, for listening. Feel free to tweet at John underscore Powers or at Nico Mayo. Uh, you'll find me on Twitter as well. Of course, we're both very active along with Tor 
on uh, LinkedIn. And we'd like to hear the conversation furthered by you all. Uh, how, how does this thesis prove out? Does it resonate for you? Well, let's end today, John, with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? So I think that the commercial market is finally going to surprise everybody and over the next decade grow faster than the rest of the solar market. And I think that not just our software, but software is going to be the biggest enabler of that. So that in a fast growing market, the fastest growing sector is going to be software. Fantastic. Software is eating the world. And uh, CNI is, in fact, going to become the dominant market for the coming decade. Well, we'll be certainly keeping our tabs on that and keeping up with you and Extensible Energy. John Powers is the CEO and founder of Extensible Energy, and we are honored to have you here on Suncast this week. All right, Solar Warriors, that was really, really juicy. I so enjoyed the conversation with John today. That is a wrap. But if you're eager to keep learning, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources, highlights, and a bevy of articles that we have dug up from the Ethernets and Internet and interwebs, pasted into the blog post over at mysuncast.com. You can do that for each and every one of these discussions, and we list as well the social media links and book recommendations and more. And another really cool feature that we've added, and I hope you'll check out, is transcripts. That's right. You, Paul Grana, and others like you have been asking for transcripts for a long time, and we've recently partnered with Thyssen, and Thyssen is placing transcripts for us uh, of each and every one of these episodes moving forward. So do go check that out. There's a link to this and where you can read the transcript if you so choose. And of course, the website, mysuncast.com, is also where you can sign up for our Suncast Tribe, a weekly newsletter to keep you informed on what's happening, where we're at, and where we're going. It's also the only way that you'll get details for our upcoming events, like tomorrow's LinkedIn Live with NREL's Solar Prize winners, as well as more information on the Suncast Summit, which I mentioned in the beginning of the episode. You can find that at mysuncast.com. Of course, the summit is linked as well at suncastsummit.com. We'll be doing a lot more of these live event type activities, and I'd love to hear from you. What topics and guests do you think we should have on these lives? How should we be approaching them? How long? What day of the week do you like to tune in? Speaking of tuning in, I hope you'll tune in next week. Tuesday, we have, uh, I think, one of our last episodes from the Podcast Lounge. It's with Stin Vos, the CEO of Esdeck, of course, the company that's been eating the racking world out of Europe. Uh, had a big splash at SPI last year. And then on Thursday, we dive into the world of search engine optimization. SEO. As we continue our focus on equipping you with the marketing chops to grow this year. You're going to love the story with my friend Matt Bertram from eWeb Results. We're going to go deep into the topic of how you can maximize your search process. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.